let's uh, we're going to back up as we've been doing. If you could, if you could actually go to First Peter two nine, and if you will, the reverence of God's word, stand with me as we read. But you are a, this is First uh, Peter two nine. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governor, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, or wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the word of the living God. Would you be seated? Thank you so much for standing. We're just going to introduce this this morning. And we... Uh, going to continue to go over our outline simply because that's one of the ways we learn is by repetition. We started in our outline and we started in the verses that we started in there in First Peter 2, 9. And you'll recall the outline we're using here all starts with P. What was the first one? Does anybody remember? Position. Position. He starts there. Then he says, okay, because of your position, flowing from that is what? Praise. Praise. And then flowing from understanding our position and the praise that naturally comes from that when we do understand it, 
comes a call for posture, and that call is a call and a posture of what? Surrender. Not to make those things true that he just spoke of, but because they are true. And then the posture of surrender. And then we talked about the next P, which is pattern. That Jesus Christ takes his life and puts our life on top of it and traces it out. That's the the uh, literal meaning of the way it says there. Because Jesus did this, now you're called to do it. Not only are you called to do it, but you're enabled to do it. Because it's not you doing it. It's him doing it in us. So then the next P is what? Power. That God enables us and gives us the power through our chief shepherd, our shepherd and overseer, the bishop of our soul, that because Jesus Christ died, we died. And because he lives, we live. That we don't draw, we, we're not, to, we're not, we're not, we don't have life because of a distant association with Christ. We have life because our life is in him. I've been crucified by Christ, nevertheless I live, but yet not I live, but the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. And then the next one is the power and then the provision, and that is the life of Christ himself. We talked about the fact that after the posture of surrender is called for, and he says, as sojourners, as pilgrims, don't succumb to the fleshly lusts that war against your soul, but submit to the Lord and let Him have His way with you. It's a deeper level of surrender called for. And that the glue that holds that together in the rest of the text in First Peter is what? Does anybody remember? Submission to authority. First in verse 13 of chapter 2, it's submission to government authority. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it's a submission to employers. Chapter 3, verse 1, it's wives to husbands. Chapter 5, verse 5, it's younger uh, folks to their elders. And then we said, you know what? These ter this term, The terms of surrender are set forth from everything that follows after the call of surrender comes in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. We talked about last week, and we went into it in the last two weeks of what it means for Jesus to be the shepherd and overseer of our souls. There are many, there are infinite reasons, I'm sure, why shepherd and overseer were put right there. But surely one of them must be that before the Lord calls a wife to submit to her husband, and in some cases that's more difficult than it is in others, and we all know that to be true. But just before he gives that truth, to the ladies, he in his tender way, the Lord reminds herself of the fact that I'm your shepherd. I'm your shepherd. And one of the things a shepherd does is he leads his sheep. You see, you can endure a lot of things in the Christian life if you know that's where God led you. I've had before friends tell me that they've been called into a difficult ministry situation. They've been called to maybe a pastor of church that was in turmoil or maybe called into a what you know up front is not going to be fun. And we've often reflected on the fact, one in particular, when a friend of mine was called to a church in Nashville, Tennessee, and the church was in uproar to say the least. And we prayed over the phone before we went and embraced this call as one of the pastors of this uh, church that was one day a real flagship church in the inner city. I said, Scott, there's one thing that will get you through all of what you're going to face. Because you're going to face some turmoil. You're going to have people there that don't think that you should be there. You're going to have people there who think they should have the position that you'll occupy. 
You're going to have people that resist you. You're going to have people that resent you at every level. And I said, there's just one thing to get you through all of that. He said, what's that? And I said, that is if you know God called you there. If you go back to that and you know that God called me here, this is where my shepherd led me. And we've talked about the fact that the shepherd doesn't just lead us into easy places. He doesn't lead us in places where there's no adversity. The grace that comes in dealing with the adversity is not on the outside, but it's what he does on the inside. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. It means that we're engaged in the battle. And we talked about the fact that the overseer is to scope us out, to see if we're battle ready. Are you ready for the battle? And we talked about the fact in the last couple of weeks that no army on the face of this earth, regardless of whether they represent something that's right and just or whether they represent something that's the polar opposite, will enjoy any success in fulfilling their battle plan unless in the ranks there is submission to authority. You can't be out in the middle of the battlefield with everything coming at you and the enemy trying to take you out when you're arguing over who's in charge. Are you contending over the fact that I should be in charge, but this guy is? Or maybe that guy's more, I'm more competent than my leader. Those are nothing but carnal excuses to disobey God. That's all that is. There's got to be submission in the ranks. Because to be outside it puts you in harm's way. It not only puts you in harm's way, it also endangers and hurts and damages the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that he's not going to perfect that which concerns us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go to heaven. But our witness is impaired. Our witness is damaged when there's not submission in the ranks. The Lord doesn't want us out there outside the authority that he's put in our life. He wants us inside the authority because inside of the authority is where the table is set. That's where the prepared meal is. I reflect back on and looking back on the shepherd and the bishop of his soul thinking about a friend of mine when we were at our former church. He came back from a mission trip to Brazil. And he said he got a beautiful picture of the contrast between a shepherd and another kind of animal because he was at a ranch, Eric, and at the ranch in Brazil. And they've got lots of them down there. Phil knows that. He, was, he lived there. And he said we had a, uh, an occasion to watch them try to harness a bull who was in a pen and they were trying to harness him to prepare him for some bad things ahead. And he fought and resisted and it took scores of men, a crew of men, to subdue him. Then they turned their attention away from that to a little lamb. And that lamb was going to be led to the slaughter. And all it took was just a little harness over his neck and he just followed his shepherd to his demise. The difference is this. According to Romans chapter 8, we're sheep accounted to the slaughter but the only thing that slaughters you when you get in the middle of adversity is what binds you the only thing that slaughters you and I in the middle of adversity where our shepherd leads us is the things that bind us in the first place we only stand to lose what impairs us on the journey the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us so God puts us and leads us as the shepherd into difficult circumstances, does an inspection to see if we're battle ready, and one of the inspection points is, are you under authority? Do we live in an age in which everybody in this world is confused about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a wife? Do we live in an age in which the lies about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a wife are 
pitched in front of our people day in and day out, not by just the media, but by people around you? Do we live in a day in which the ebb and flow of what it means to be a woman has been taken to its lowest place? Yet Jesus himself elevated womanhood. Back in his day, when the questions came up about divorce, and he was answering them in order to entrap him, but he gave them answers that gave us an idea of what he regards about womanhood. And they would, they would divorce a wife for burning the meal. If the supper was not just right and tasty and cooked correctly, that was a basis for divorce. That's how things got. And Jesus said, that's not so. From the, from the beginning, that was not so. And it's not that way now. He took womanhood and took it to a place that only the Lord, who created woman, could take it. But let's fly high over this text this morning. Let's look from God's perspective and God's orientation, because God's perspective is the only one that matters anyway. This is what we have to remember. When the call for wives to submit to their husbands comes, God has a great transcendent purpose for it that's way beyond social order and the fact that somebody needs to be head of the home. You know, it's been said before that anything has two heads is a monster. That in order to have order in any enterprise, whether it be government, whether it be in church, or whether it be in the family, somebody's got to be in charge. We can't vie for that. We can't compete for that. To compete for that causes nothing but confusion and disarray in any organization. But the home is an organism. It's alive like the church is. And just as surely as there needs to be order in the church and there needs to be order in any organism, in order to have order in homes, somebody's got to be the head. And the head of the home is called and marked out by God as the man. Now, you as a man, this text doesn't leave us out because it catches up with us in verse 7. But you and I as men, you're leading your home. I promise you. You're leading your home. You're either leading toward Jesus Christ or away from Him. But they're following your lead, whether you're the leader or not. In other words, wherever you go, that's the way the home is going to go. That's going to be the trajectory of the home. So the greater weight, the greater burden, and the greater responsibility falls on us as men. Us as men. The greater call to death and the greater call to sacrifice is for us as men because we're to love our wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How did he do that? Two things come to mind. Now, when I use that text in premarital counseling, this is how I always use it. If you want to love your wife, your future wife, the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, you've got to remember two things. Two, two things, two words. Initiative and sacrifice. Initiative and sacrifice. The way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it is he took the initiative. He left heaven to come get his bride. He left paradise. He left perfection to come get his bride. He took the initiative. If Christ would have waited for us to take the initiative, it would never happen. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, that no man seeks God. We wouldn't have gone after God. We were born going after ourselves. We were, gone, we were born going away from God. So what God did was His Son left heaven and pursued His bride. Men, you take the initiative to love. You take the initiative to sacrifice. That's what it means to love 
your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And it is a sacrificial love because it's evidenced certainly, certainly the greatest offer of sacrifice based on love that's ever been and never will be repeated. Jesus set the standard far and above what we're to aim at and it certainly is the cross of Calvary. He died for his bride. We're to die. The call for a wife is to be submissive. But let's look at it. Is it greater than, is this call for submission have more to do with uh, the, than just the order of the home? The fact that somebody needs to be in charge and things can run more smooth when somebody is in charge? Is it just that? Are we going to reduce it to just that? Or does God have a transcendent truth that we need to look at here? Here's a transcendent truth we need to look at. And that's this. First of all, let's look at the problem. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Go turn with me if you will. Let's fan back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the fallout of the fall. The fallout of the fall. Many of you have heard this before. But men, in order to be able to pastor and shepherd your wives, which you're called to do, washing them with the water of the word that you and I are called to do, in order to shepherd them, you've got to know where their weaknesses and their greatest challenges come from. In order to intercede for them, like we talked about this morning, you've got to be able to identify with where their greatest burden lies. And it's given to us in the very beginning of the Bible and the fallout of the fall. This is the consequence, a consequence, of the sin in the Garden of Eden. You'll recall that Adam and Eve were told, of all the trees in the, in the, in the garden you can eat, but not the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The moment you eat that, you'll die. Well, we know that at that moment, they didn't die physically, although that did result in their physical death. But at that moment, they died a far worse death. And that is, they died spiritually. Their fellowship with God was cut off, and God made a promise that He was going to go about an eternal plan that He already came up with before this happened. It wasn't a reaction. He'd already planned it to do something about that. And He did something about that through the gift of His Son. We praise God for that. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see his promise of the fact that he'll do that. But then he speaks to the woman and he says, here is what's going to happen to you and here are going to be your challenges as a result of what's happened. This is, going, this is part of, for you, precious lady, the fallout of the fall. And here it is in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, we know uh, the, uh, the birth pains and the, the pain that accompanies uh, a precious lady bringing a child into this world. We've got some of our ladies among us that are about to have children and we celebrate and praise God for that and pray for you. But look at the next part of that verse. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You've probably heard this before, but we have to go into it and look at it in order to really get our arms around the text that we're dealing with in 1 Peter 3. When he said that, he did not mean that you're going to desire your wife, your husband as in some physical desire or that you're going to be drawn to him in a, in a, in a way of marriage union or somehow that you're going to, be, you're going to want to be uh, close to him and all the things that you could take from that statement. When he said that, what he meant was is your desire is going to be that you're going to want to occupy his role. It means that your desire is that you're going to want to, you're going to be tempted to want to rule over him. 
but I've ordained it that he would rule over you. And therefore, it sets us up for tension in the home. It sets us up for that. Now, the exact Greek phrase, I mean, a Hebrew phrase from which your desire will be for your husband is found in the next chapter in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you'll look at that. It says, this is the Lord speaking to Cain, warning him of what was about to happen if he kept on with his anger and his faithless conduct, that he was going to, he was going to wind up slaying his brother. And he says, well, let's back up to verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And look at this phrase. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. When it says desire is for you, and in the previous chapter it says your desire shall be for your husband, the same Hebrew words from which those are translated are identical. So what he's saying is just as sin desired to control and rule over and, and, and manipulate Cain, this will be the fallout of the fall, that the woman's desire will be to rule over and to control her husband. That's why he bothers to make a command out of it, post the call for surrender to the woman and to reiterate that command because the Lord knows that that runs against your flesh in every sense of the way. Let's just be honest about it. That is a flesh pattern that women are bequeathed as a result of Eve's and Adam's sin. That's the fallout of the fall. You and I know this well enough to know this. Everything in Genesis, because it's such a foundational book, every little tweak and every little turn in Genesis has enormous consequences when it's lived out. Every little thing in Genesis matters. Every little phrase. And so what do we do but see this lived out? Now men, the reason that's important for you and I is because we need to be able to identify with that weakness in our, lives, our wives' lives so that we understand and know how to pray for them. We don't need to scorn them for that challenge. We don't need to elevate ourselves above that challenge. We don't need to be impatient, which we can. In seeing and viewing that challenge, we need to sympathize with it because it is a fallout from the fall. Now, now, here's the great thing about it, and we're going to close after this. This is the transcendent truth. This is the transcendent truth. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2. I've got a personal testimony in my home, the home I was raised in, that reflects this truth. But look at, uh, look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I guess I'm going to probably save that for next week. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not regard it robbery to be... What's that word? Say it out loud, please. 
Equal. What does it say in Jerusalem? Okay, grasp. Equal. On same footing. Jesus is God. Okay, equal. Remember that word. Translated, in my translation, equal. He did not regard equality with God. Equal with God. as something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, here's the transcendent truth. When a Christian woman, because of conscience toward God, remember now, it says... The submission, the motivation for submitting to government authority, the motivation for submitting to even a tyrant employer when it's committed by God is because of conscience toward God. I do it because of Him, as unto the Lord. When a Christian woman quietly submits to her husband, she paints a portrait of the gospel every time. Now here's why. Equality with God. Jesus is God. Nobody can explain this, but God is one. But He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that. And Jesus is God. And He's equal with God. Woman and man are equal. See, society says that submission demeans the value of a woman. But in reality, submission celebrates the value of the woman. Because once you celebrate and once you submit to your husband, what you're doing is in front of your, your children and your husbands and your grandchildren and your community and your church is you're painting a portrait of the gospel every time. See, Jesus is equal. Woman is equal to man. But Jesus didn't regard that equality as something to be held on to. But was willing to spin himself, come down here and put himself under the authority of God the Father in order to purchase his bride. Men and women are equal in every sense of the word. He goes on to say, remember, you're heirs together in the grace of life. But Jesus took that equality. We have equal worth but we have different roles we have equal worth but we have different roles oh ladies you would do well right now to teach this to your young children you would do well to teach this to your daughters right now and the best way to teach it to your daughters and your sons is to model it in every spiritual endeavor the primary way you lead is by example. The primary way you lead is by example. And oh, dear ones, don't buy into the spirit of the age that submission somehow or another demeans your role. You are most Christ-like when you do it. Can I say this? And we're going to close. But I want you, I want you to remember this. And we're going to go into this more next week. Listen to this. There's only one place in the Bible. There's only one place. Now listen up. There's only one place in the Bible where there is any promise 
of God working through somebody redemptively to save another without saying a word. And that's when a wife is submissive to her husband. Think of that power. Can you imagine that? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at it. Ladies, don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to his, his, his shenanigans. Don't listen to the spirit of the age. You're special. You're needed. You, reflect, you have the opportunity to reflect Christ like no other. And I've seen this played out in my own home, the home I was raised in. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Look, wives, be submissive to your husbands. That even if some, it doesn't mean all, but if you have an unsaved husband who does not obey the Word, who has no regard for God's Word, who has contempt without, for God's Word, that husband, without a word from you, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Do you know why? Because every time you submit to your husband, you preach the gospel by your actions. The Apostle Paul said that the way that God's redemptive message is communicated to people is through the preaching of God's Word. But there's only one exception to that in the Bible. That is the power of a submissive life. Oh, dear ones, dear ones, let's celebrate your calling. Let's revel in it. Let's, let's embrace it. Let's model it. Because you, you paint a portrait of the gospel. As a matter of fact, in Titus chapter 2, and we'll go there next week, but just to preview of coming attractions, in Titus chapter 2, the Bible says if a woman does not do that, she blasphemes the gospel. Now, I know none of you want to do that. None of, you want, none of you want to paint a portrait that's contrary to the very message and Savior who redeemed you. You don't want to do that. And let me tell you this. This is a hard word. I have been in the pastorate for a long time now. And I've seen husbands uh, who have, have not been kind. I've seen tyrant husbands. I've seen disengaged husbands. I've seen engaged husbands. I've seen spirit-filled husbands. And I've seen lost husbands who act lost. I've seen the whole gamut. And I know it's a hard word, but I've also seen that when a lady, a Christian woman, embraces that truth, I've seen God work through her submissive spirit to touch her husband's life. I've been in the driveway with somebody when he prayed to receive Christ simply because his wife decided to submit. And she got out of the way and started being a portrait of the gospel rather than a contradiction of it. You're equal with your husband. Jesus is equal with God. Don't regard that equality as something to hold on to. doesn't mean you lose the equality. It just means you're willing to put it under the authority of your husband. And in so doing that, every time you do that, you preach the gospel. Boy, that's a lot at stake. I want you to know something. Yours is the only calling for the advancement of the gospel in the scriptures without saying a word. Everybody else has to preach. That's more powerful than the most powerful pulpit that's ever been. Charles Spurgeon had to preach. Other preachers have to preach. You submit because it's the most powerful portrait of the gospel on the face of this earth. I've got a personal testimony about this and we'll share it with you next week. And so doing that, God has taken womanhood and what has He done? He's dressed it up 
and he's made a garden, and he wants you to be a bouquet and a flower in his garden. Look at what it says. Submission. Look at it. There's a preview of coming attractions. That gentle and quiet spirit in verse 9, listen to this, is very precious in the sight of God. Oh, very precious in the sight of God. You know why? Because it's a celebration as a Christian for Christian motivation and empowerment and an act of obedience. It is a celebration of the obedience of his beloved son on the cross of Calvary. Ladies, wives, wives-to-be, Christian woman. The Bible says that the man who finds a good wife, that finds a wife, finds a good thing, is favorable. We need to pray. We need to model this because the transcendent truth is this. This is not about social order, even though it's necessary for social order. This is not about order in the home, even though it is necessary for order in the home. But this, dear sisters, is about the gospel itself. The very cornerstone of mine and your faith and the confidence that we have for eternity. Jesus loves you so much that he's given you such favor that your call as a wife can emulate his redemptive activity through his son in that relationship like no other relationship on the face of this earth. That's big. That's big. Amen.